you are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Rootbound is brought to you by Plantain. No, not the banana. The other one. Plantain, the edible duct tape of the yard. Welcome to another episode of Rootbound. My name is Steve, and this is another special episode, which is why I played this sound. But before we get into the special episode, this is also a good opportunity to remind you, the listeners, about how Rootbound works. And so here it goes. On Rootbound each week, I invite a guest who shares a plant with me that means something to them. And then I share with the guest about a plant that means something to me. And through this process, we can all learn more about plants and learn more about each other. But on some episodes, on special episodes, the guest chooses a plant that is on my secret list of plants. And that means we have a special episode where we only talk about one plant. And that's what is happening today. However, I admit, this time I kind of cheated because uh, it was no accident that this plant was chosen by both of us. It's a plant that I'm really interested in, and when I was researching it, I came across this academic paper, and I was so fascinated that I invited the author of that paper to come talk about this plant. So let's just get right into it, meet our guest, and talk about sassafras. And I'll do whatever it takes to get that sassafras feeling. Sassafras. Hi, Claire. Welcome to Rootbound. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Um, Nice to meet you as well, and this episode's a little bit different We're only going to be talking about one plant today, um, and would you like to share the plant we're going to talk about? Sure. Uh, We are going to be talking about sassafras. Awesome. Yeah, so sassafras is something I'm really interested in, and when I was doing some research in sassafras, I came across the, uh, the paper you wrote, which is called Disentangling Commodities Histories, Pawame and Sassafras in Early in the early modern world, which I found super interesting. So that's why I invited you to be on the show. And before we get into that, maybe maybe just for the audience, we can start with, what is sassafras? I think people know the word, but people don't necessarily know, like, what kind of plant is it? Can you describe the, the, the plant? Uh, yeah. So when we're generally talking about sassafras, we're talking about this North American plant that is mostly kind of... Um, Eastermost bit of North America, um, and it is a tree, and it has um, multi-form leaves, um, and um, you may have seen the tree itself, especially if you live kind of east coast somewhere down into Florida, um, and also historically, relatively recently historically, it's been used in various kinds of beverages, uh, so you may also be familiar with it from that. Very good. And I'm curious about how you personally got interested in sassafras and decided to write this really interesting paper about it. Sure. I mean, I actually, I'm currently in Indiana. um, And this is the first time I've actually seen a living sassafras in person. Oh, wow. Um, So as a historian of early modern Russia, I'm spending a lot of time reading a lot of early modern Russian sources. And one thing that's interesting to do is 
when you find things that are out of place. So I was reading these prescriptions for the czars of Moscow, um, and it's just like lists and lists and lists of things, and I'm going through them and finding words and then looking up the different things and working out what it is, and I come across sassafras, and I go and look it up and go, okay, hang on, we're in 1645, we're in Moscow, this thing is in, at this point, mostly coming into Eurasia from Spanish-controlled Florida. We're not supposed to have things from the Americas in Moscow by 1645. Like, this is an object that's way out of place by, like, at least several hundred, if not several thousand miles. Um, and so from there, had to kind of untangle, well, what is this thing? Where did it come from? How did it get here? Why did we want it in the first place? Yeah, that is super interesting, and and that's I, I found that that lens uh, kind of through Russia super interesting. I'm really interested in how plants travel around the world and how plants become associated with a place, even if they're not from there. And so that that's really great. I wonder if you could cover a little bit, you know, the uses for sassafras, and maybe particularly what made it so popular. Yeah, uh, this is often a tricky question. So this is more something that the ethnobotanists get into, which is uh, kind of trying to work out how did we first decide that something is used for a certain purpose. So a different example would be um, garlic in vampire folklore. Like when was the first time we decided that garlic's good for scaring away <laughs> blood drinking undead? Like it's trying to work your way back to the origin of that is often really hard. Um, and when it comes to things like um, also coffee, tea, tobacco, all of these things that we now think of as having exciting qualities, how did we come to that conclusion? Um, so it's a little bit tricky. Um, we know that uh, various Native American nations at some point realized that this makes a nice tea, um, and that tea seems to be good against fevers. Um, and it's um, and still used in various Native American communities today. Um, and that is where it kind of ends up in Eurasia. It's when, when the Europeans invade the Americas, um, locals tell them about the properties of certain plants, and one of them was sassafras. Very, very good. Um, let's get into then maybe maybe the name. That was the how I think I actually found your papers. I'm really fascinated with the names. Anyone who hears this podcast, like go into the names and figuring out how plants got their names and I was trying to figure that out and I think it was your paper that kind of first elucidated that to me so I wonder if you could talk about that name sassafras and then maybe some of the other names it had maybe pre-sassafras yeah I mean as you would have seen in the article I spent a lot of time going well, what is this thing because it's one of those things that gets called the same name in lots of places but they aren't always referring to exactly the same object but then gets called other things first and it's another kind of classic problem. We don't know exactly where that word comes from. And again, this is kind of typical. Um, given how much we've lost from history, the first time we have a record of something is almost certainly not the first time it actually happened. So the first time mm -hmm. sassafras pops up, that's not going to be the first time someone used that word. It's probably not even the first time someone wrote it down. Probably it's French from when the French were hanging out in Florida in the 16th century, um, is the best we can do. And that then gets taken on uh, in Afro-Eurasia, so by European colonists in the Americas and then in Afro-Eurasia. 
Um, and for several centuries, it's or a couple of centuries, it refers to this American plant. And then the botanists come along and say, well, actually, this is a genus and we are going to put it together with these other things, which are also technically called sassafras. So if you go to a um, botany textbook today, it's going to tell you about several different kinds of sassafras. So sassafras, as we kind of know it in North America, only gets that name in a very specific window. Um, before that, and for that matter, in Native American communities, continuous across this time frame, it's called a bunch of other things. Um, and we don't always know the exact names for it because they didn't necessarily want to tell outsiders or they didn't write it down or various other reasons. Um, so we, it's associated with this word um, that I confess I've never heard anyone pronounce for me, so I'm only going on its pronunciation from it written down, is um, Pawami. Um, which is associated particularly with this um, Tamuqua nation of what is now called Florida. Um, and so we know different Native American communities called it slightly different things. Yeah, very interesting. That, that, that history is so interesting to me and how, how, a, how a plant that can be so uh, popular and, and so uh, used throughout different cultures can, can kind of lose its any of its original names like this names like sometimes you have plants where they kind of keep some vestige of 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 a native name or something like that but in this case it's so entirely different and it it reminds me of another plant that i have talked about on the show before the jerusalem artichoke uh, or the sunchoke now which uh it's very hard to tell i I found one reference to what it's uh what what a indigenous name is but but its name is so like twisted that it's actually nonsense it's not from jerusalem it's not an artichoke but we all call it that so anyway uh sassafras is is, i think is very similar to me which is i think why i started looking into it um so i have i have a quote here from your paper which i thought was very interesting which uh, i'll read if you don't mind and then maybe you can reflect on a little bit um it's a little bit about that that uh collision between uh you know europeans and and native people here in this continent and it says in considering sassafras as object coming into early modern eurasia we are looking at europeans appropriating and profiting from the expertise on sassafras root as an antifebrile while simultaneous while simultaneously killing the timokua and other native american exports experts on american medicinal flora whose knowledge was the very basis of all subsequent ideas about the use of sassafras I don't know if you want to talk about it a little bit. I think that's a very interesting statement. Sure. I mean, it's always interesting when people um, quote my articles back to me because then you're like, <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I, I wrote something that still makes sense to me today. Um, so <laughs> one of the things you have to kind of think about as a historian is what is happening at the same time, what's happening in the same spaces. And if you are looking at the history of the uh, of early modern sassafras you end up looking at interactions between european colonialists and native american communities and in particular in this kind of region around florida you can't help but see that the native american population is being murdered and especially when you notice okay it's the tamuqua who are particularly Um, picked out in European texts as having interacted with the Europeans with this, it then becomes incredibly obvious that there is this this huge prioritizing of European health over Native American health that you see partly in the appropriation of Native American herbs, 
but also in this this violent disregard for the well-being of the native communities. And so it's kind of one of those things you have to put the two things together because they're happening to the same people in the same place at the same time. Yeah, very, very uh, well said. Um, let's talk about this fellow named uh, Monardes. What's his connection to this? I thought that this was super interesting. So he is one of a number of European medico-botanical figures who write about non-European plants and things. Um, and he, in particular, he's one of a group of people who never actually go and see the things they write about. So they end up being the expert, but never actually are there, which is this kind of this interesting um, statement on the nature of expertise that this guy sitting in Spain is the expert. Um, and so he, he has this interest in these plants and he happens to be located in kind of a major trading center. Um, and so his, his intellectual interest, his commercial interest um, is kind of fueled by his location, but then is kind of, um, how to say, he also, it also aligns with the, the interests of the Spanish empire. Because if you think about, I mean, you could actually compare it to um, modern drugs companies. If a modern drugs company develops something and has a patent, it's hugely valuable to them, right? But in the, in the Spanish empire is instead finding something and going, well, I have control um, of um, this particular plant um, and therefore this is really valuable. If I can keep control of this thing and tell other people that it's really valuable, then this, um, then this is a huge um, benefit to the Spanish empire. So maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, how popular and valuable sassafras was. I think it's kind of interesting for like people today to be like, wait, I don't, I've never used this thing. Why is it, you know, why was it so valued? And like, how, how big was that market back then? Yeah, I mean, this is a question that we are very keen to answer, but it's a really difficult one to answer. And this is actually where the Russian records become really important. So the question for historians is, where do you get access to the information that would help you answer that question? What kinds of records are available? Um, if you think about your house, you know, you don't keep every little prescription bottle, you don't keep every CVS receipt in your house, right? These are the kinds of things people throw away. And, um, and so, and you don't necessarily write in your diary every time you take an aspirin. Um, and so the question is, where, where do we get access to those records? So we don't often have kind of a person by person, um, like how are people actually using it? So we tend to have medical books, like what you should be doing. So like the equivalent of Mayo Clinic explaining a drug today. Um, and we tend to have import records, but these are like, I don't know, World Bank figures or something. Like it's telling you mm -hmm. this mass amount was imported in this period. Um, whereas the Russian court were very interested in recording prescriptions, mostly in, in order to work out who to blame if someone dies <laughs> during the process. Mm -hmm. um, and for some quirk of historical survival, we have 
a huge quantity of the 17th century prescriptions. So we know exactly what was given to Tsar Mikhail Fyodorovich in the last week of his life in 1645. And you can't say that for even most big historical figures. Wow. And so this is this incredible snapshot of who's getting what when. Um, the difficulty then is, okay, we know they're taking it, we know the quantities, we know what else they're taking it with. Why are they taking it? <laughs> the Russian records don't always tell us that because, again, if you pick up, you pick up your prescription from CVS, the receipt itself... It says aspirin, right? It didn't say mm -hmm. it didn't say you sprained your ankle in a bicycle accident, right? It just right. tells you the thing. Um, and the Russian records, if it's the czar, you get a whole thing. If it's someone else, well, you know, we gave noblemen whoever this thing. We don't really care. It's often an antifebrile, so it's against mm -hmm. fever. Um, but there's also some evidence of if you have, if you're in Europe and you have multiple American goods together, um, it's about syphilis because they thought uh -huh. syphilis was from the Americas. And so plants from the Americas must treat this thing being mm -hmm. the theory. So when we have an idea what's happening, probably it's antifebrile or probably it's against um, syphilis. Very, very interesting. Uh, another thing you mentioned in the paper is kind of this like comparison between tobacco and sassafras. And one, I think, is like the popularity. And I think it is like, do you think it was on par with tobacco? I and mean, we all know how popular tobacco is, was and is in this in this continent. Um, but but the scale of sassafras trade, how would you compare it to the tobacco trade? I think that's an interesting one. I think my impression is sassafras and medicinal American herbs were initially much more popular and kind of mm -hmm. come in quite high because that's an established thing, right? Um, mm -hmm. We know we want to take things, especially plants, to treat ourselves. Um, tobacco seems to have taken off a little bit more slowly but becomes huge. Um, mm -hmm. And... That seems to have been from kind of uh, various reasons. And one thing I can't remember if I have in the paper, but the way they are harvesting sassafras and tobacco seems to have been different. Tobacco, you're using a fairly young plant, comparatively speaking. Um, and it's a plant that is therefore relatively easy to keep in kind of a, a structured environment. So something like wheat as well. You can grow it, you, you can harvest it relatively fast. Um, whereas if you think about on the other kind of scale, if you want to harvest mature forest trees, they need to have been around, you know, decades, potentially longer before you are going to interact with them to get the thing you need. And sassafras was closer to the second one. Um, sometimes they're using the bark, Sometimes they're using the root. Sometimes they're taking the bark off the root. Um, but what you need there is a fairly mature sassafras tree. So you're not growing it yourself. You're going to an established um, forest to go and get it. And so it's a much less controlled environment. And it's almost a bit more haphazard. You know how much tobacco you've planted you can make a fair estimate of how much it's going to produce every year. Um, whereas if you're going into the forest for sassafras, 
who knows how much we're necessarily going to find today. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Another aspect about that, which I think you mentioned a little bit in the in the paper, is uh, how that search for sassafras uh, could have driven conflict between uh, indigenous peoples here and colonists because it's uh, something where you have to go further into the forest to find this, and further and further, the more popular it is, you know, it's it's not going to be near where your uh, colony is. So yeah, I found that really fascinating. Uh, and then maybe just the last part about your paper is, uh, you know, and we talked about this a little bit already, but but how how do you think it got popular in Europe? And then how do you think it really got popular in Russia so early? Um, I think that was super fascinating. Yeah. So, um, again, it's quite difficult to trace exactly how all this happens. But what seems to have happened is... Various Native American communities had valued it, it seems, for some time before the Europeans show up. The early, pretty early colonists, um, certainly early 16th century, become aware of this thing um, and they can't get their familiar medicines from Europe. So, you know, they choose a generic local equivalent, like you can't find your American aspirin in Germany, you pick up the local brand, right? Mm -hmm. um, they seem to have then written home and said, well, we have this new thing um, and we quite like it. And so then people in Europe who are curious about this new place um, and are interested in the commercial possibilities say, well, can you send us some of this stuff? Why is it that sassafras gets picked up? Well, several different things get picked up. It is possible that simply the way you transport sassafras might have helped it because it's often being, um, it's being cut apart and it's being dried in some way. So we're not trying to take, you know, an entire tree or some mm -hmm. soft fruit or something like that. So that helps it spread more. Monades particularly pushes this in his book, um, which will also have helped. Sometimes people just pick certain things up. It's not always, I don't have like a beautiful explanation uh -huh. of why Afro-Eurasians pick this one in particular. They are interested in other things. Russians, why did the Russians pick it up? Russians were particularly interested in herbs as medicine over other things. Um, so, for example, Europeans would use animal flesh and sometimes even dried out human flesh in their medicines, which mm. the Russians were not keen on at all. Uh -huh. um, but we have this American medicine, and maybe this is interesting. Um, so there's, there seems to be this kind of push and pull between various people trying to make money off sassafras and various people having curiosity about these new things. And sassafras conveniently fits into an existing category of herbs are mostly safe as medicine. Um, so some combination of those things is kind of the best I've been able to come up with. Super, super interesting. Yeah, it's I, I love those historical mysteries. Um, if you don't mind now, I, I could share some of the the my connections with Sassafras and, and sure. apologies if if some things get a little bit more speculative because <laughs> I don't have as quite the academic uh, uh, background as you. But but I'm going to try to be as accurate as possible. Um, you know, for me, I got interested in Sassafras. I think just because I, I I live in Northern Virginia and and hearing about the plants here, hereby and being interested in plants. But then when I started reading about it, I think the first thing I came across, and this is something that, that really connected with me, is 
So I have uh, I have on my dad's mom's side of the family is from Southeast Texas, and that's that's you know Cajun country. And I never realized that there's something called filet powder, and filet powder is the dried leaves of sassafras, which is used in traditional gumbo recipes. Um, I didn't I, I didn't know that, even though I have this um, this uh, Cajun heritage, and, and gumbo, you know, is this like thick stew that's served in the South, and and we had that all the time as a kid. However, there are three classes of gumbo eaters I've understood. There's the filet powder gumbo eaters, there's the okra gumbo eaters, and then there's the roux gumbo eaters. And my family was a roux. We always made gumbo with a roux. And, you know, uh, but that roux, which is, you know, made from flour, is used to thicken a soup. But the sassafras leaves dried and put into a powder, they have this mucilage that can thicken soups. And it's really cool. And so I was like, man, how did I not know about this? And I called my grandma and I was like, why don't I know about this? And she's like, yeah, we just didn't, we didn't use it. We didn't like it. So <laughs> that's not how we made gumbo. But I then, of course, had to track down some sassafras leaves and make it myself. And so I made maybe the first nice. filet gumbo in my family. And it was pretty good. And it does impart a different flavor. Like it's got a little bit of that sassafrasy herbaceousness, but it's not too strong. Um, but that that's pretty fun. Um, I then also got really interested in, and I don't know if you know about this, there's the word gumbo, which is for the stew. There's some arguments about how that name came about, and the sources of this are a little bit unclear to me, but one is that it, it is from a Bantu word for uh, for okra, because okra can also be used to thicken soups, and, and there is a Bantu word that, that it, this like king gumbo, I'm probably pronouncing it terribly, that means okra. However, there's also apparently a Choctaw native indigenous word for that's combo, which means the powdered sassafras leaves. And so it's really interesting that these two words that mean similar things sound so similar. And it's like, well, did one influence the other or did they develop completely independently but have a similar enough meaning? And I can imagine, you know, two different people having these conversations of saying, oh, combo, gumbo, oh, it's... (laughs) And thinking they're talking about the same thing. I, that's just an imagination. But uh, I, I thought that was really fascinating. And I think there's probably some other interesting examples in history of, of words that have the same meaning, even they have different origins. Uh, that was really interesting. Yeah. The other thing I think, um, I don't know if you can talk about this, but, but you know, the it is illegal to use sassafras in like commercial products in the United States. I don't know if that's the same in Europe and in, in, in Russia. Is that, is that still a thing? Um, I've never seen any sassafras-related legislation. Um, it is possible it's been banned. I think, honestly, we could just, like, Google it and see if anything yeah, comes sure, up. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, audience I Google suspect, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I suspect it hasn't just because I don't think this is an issue. Um, yeah. yeah. It's not like, I mean, you'd have to put a fair amount of effort into going and finding some sassafras. I'm not sure I've ever seen any kind of sassafras for sale. There's probably some in the botanical gardens. Um, So Kew Garden in London is a pretty big uh, botanical collection. I'm sure they have, they probably have some dried specimens and some live specimens. Um, But I suspect that one hasn't been banned. Just, yeah, lack of availability. I mean, that is actually, you bring up an interesting point because there's something that was so well traded and so well known in Europe that the czars of Russia were taking it, and now that is almost entirely disappeared. And I don't know, it, it's yeah. super fascinating about how that occurs. But yeah, in the United States, it is illegal to use uh, sassafras products in commercial products. 
And that comes from a study in the 1960s where they found out that it gives cancer to rats. But it's one of those things where people argue, is it a case where the, the dosage was so extreme that if you were to give a human the equivalent dose, what does that even mean? But then some people will kind of go down a little bit of a conspiracy rabbit hole that saffron, the, 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 one of the, uh, the key like oils from uh, essential oils from sassafras is also a starting material for ecstasy. And so some people argue that maybe that's the reason why it's still illegal in the United States is kind of this, it was already illegal because of this cancer thing, but nobody's really fighting to make it legal again. And meanwhile, it's also can be used to make illicit drugs. uh, So it's not there, but it's a little bit of a bummer because uh, we have this great tradition in the United States of root beer. And that was one of the initial flavor profiles of root beer. And now there is no, original root beer you cannot you, you cannot buy it maybe there's sure. some people out there probably making it themselves but that's a little bit of a bummer um yeah but yeah i think i think that's always really interesting about how this plant that was so popular and then became illegal and yeah, yeah it's a, just a super fascinating history there yeah and i mean it's sassafras is is kind of partly dropping off in the period where um people start making more farm, more and more pharmaceutical drugs and kind of extracting mm-hmm. uh, more, more of the kind of chemical-based ones we have today. And I mean, the fact that sassafras has something dangerous in it, um, even back in, look at the 16th century, Paracelsus, this famous um, Swiss medic, talked about how it's not about different qualities of things, it's about the dose. Paracelsus is a theme on the show. I- Absolutely. Okay. The, yeah. The dose, the dose makes the poison is is a is a real is a real right. thing that comes up over and over again. So yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. N- yeah. I mean, you can you can give yourself nutmeg psychosis, but you're going to have to eat like five nutmegs. Um, yeah. So it's that's not nutmeg isn't dangerous, but whereas arsenic, we all have arsenic in us, but it's mm. such a tiny amount, and so the issue is that the amount to kill you from arsenic is pretty tiny compared to the amount to make you sick from nutmeg, which is huge. So almost everything has something dangerous in it. Like apple pips have something in it that's terrible as well. Um, So it's kind of a weak justification for banning sassafras, um, but it's a general government thing that unless there's a big industry behind it saying we should unban this thing, probably it's going to stay banned forever. Yeah, and that's that's probably true. And, and, And it might be okay for sassafras to continue because just I worry sometimes about the conservation of sassafras. And I think that time of, of it being very popular uh, probably put a lot of pressure on it. And as far as like thinking about really big old sassafras trees that they're probably fairly rare. Um, So, you know, maybe it's not so bad. It's still illegal, but it, you know, it is when people don't get to experience this cool historical plant. So I've now that I got interested in, I have made some sassafras root tea. My, my, uh, mom has a property kind of not too far from here and there's a lot of sassafras there and i'm trying to be very careful to harvest it responsibly and only taking the roots from really small uh offshoots from larger trees and things like that so i've made it maybe made it once a year for the past two years and it is a really lovely tea add some honey it's really nice um but it comes down to another theme this podcast is like trying to get to the like the core of what a plant is and think about seasonality. And I think, I think Western culture has a tendency to like over commoditize something and take something yeah. that's good and then push it to the boundary of where it, it kind of loses itself. And you talk about that in, in the paper about an object, a word and an imagined place, you know, sassafras of how this object became a word and then 
was so related to something imaginary that it kind of lost really what it truly was. I don't know. Am I saying that right? I think I found, found that really interesting in your paper. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that makes sense to me. And if you look at something like like modern botanical classifications of Linnaeus, I mean, when you're classifying things, you're always choosing certain things that are important. And so, okay, we are deciding that, um, you know, the color of the leaves are important, but have we considered things like the altitude that something grows at, um, the soil, the climate, like certain things, we're always deciding certain parts of the plant's life and experiences are significant to us, but not necessarily thinking about all the things that um, impact the plants. Um, and when you had people bringing things from the Americas and from um, Asia into Europe, you oft they often had trouble growing them because they'd missed part of what makes them actually work as a plant because a dead plant kind of isn't really a plant anymore, right? Like you have mm -hmm, to have it mm -hmm. living and growing for it to be itself. Yeah, well, that's very well said. Um, I think I think that about covers it. I wanted to give you opportunity to talk about. I think you have a book coming out soon. Um, I do. I wonder, yes. Yeah. What What's that about? I know this. I think it has a little bit to do with what we're talking about, but maybe it's a little bit bigger. Uh, yes, my book editor will be very happy that you've given me the opportunity to to plug this thing. Um, so this is mixing medicines, which is coming out shortly with McGill Queen's Press. Um, the book basically comes from this question of what is a good idea to consume if you're sick and how do we make mm. that choice? And this, again, is based on those very rich early modern Russian records. And so I do talk about plants and how Russians kind of expanded their, their um, international connections because they really liked plants. But then also on the flip side, there's this, I mentioned before, the eating of fleshy medicines, like things based on viper's flesh that Western Europeans did, that Russians were like, this is weird. Um, and the reasons they're making all these choices have to do with um, the local culture. And so it's a, a study of, okay, you, you have this wonderful global pharmacy available to you, which ones do you pick? And you don't only pick in terms of availability, you pick in terms of what makes sense to you um, as a human aware of their body and having certain preconceptions about what it is good to put in your body. Very interesting. Uh, maybe one last top of topic about that. I wonder if you cover this in the book because uh, those choices are about are very myriad, but I'm thinking about today and how we choose medicines today. And another thing that comes into that a lot is marketing. And I'm wondering if 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 that comes in at all uh, mm. in like the h history of it. Right. I actually have part of the book is about chemical medicine. Um, and that, um, it, that was something that the Western European physicians, who were the ones actually doing the medicine at the Russian court, actually wrote about several times. But chemicals don't come up a lot in those records. Um, so it certainly looks like the Western European physicians are trying to mar market chemical medicine to the Russian elite. And so they the kind of the early modern marketing is things like um, dedicating a book to a patron and writing a beautiful introduction about here are my ideas and this is why I'm giving this to you. Um, so there certainly is an attempt to market 
um, chemical medicine to a group who may have been a bit more uh, wary of it. Very, very interesting. I, I think just to tie it back to Sassafras, and uh, I think Monardis did a great job of marketing, right, in that early area of, of writing a book that became Absolutely. popular and as far yeah. as like making it. So anyway, that, that was super interesting. I, I'm really looking forward to your book. And thank you so much for thank taking you. the time to talk about Sassafras today. Thank you for having me. I'm talking about hokey common sassafras tea. Brings me back to Carolina. Hokey common sassafras tea. Nothing could be diviner. Treat your tummy to a delicacy. Mmm, delicious. Hokey common sassafras tea. Oh, what a dish this dish is. A question I'm starting to ask about every plant I talk about on this podcast is, what lesson does that plant have to teach me? And I think with sassafras, it's a lesson about history. Maybe it's just because I was just talking to a historian, but I think with sassafras in particular, but also trees in general, there's a lot to learn about history and to understand about history and to learn about respecting history. You know, with sassafras itself, it's a plant that's been used by people for thousands of years, and its and its use is intertwined in human history, and there's been, you know, terrible human conflict and, and international trade and, and ebbs and flows in its use and popularity, and it's really just really tied in to, you know, the history of human beings and how they used it, which is, you know, which we just learned about. But also because it's a tree, you know, trees live a really long time. And there's trees that that single specimen can span a large amount of human history. I was reading about the world's largest sassafras tree, which is in a town called Owensboro in Kentucky. And it's estimated to be uh, at least 300 years old. And it's, you know, that's just it's because it's the largest tree they know about it. It's very possible there's, you know, trees not quite as big that are as old or older all around the country. And so thinking about what those trees, you know, have seen, putting yourself in the position of that tree is, a, is I think, a worthwhile process. Actually, the other day I was at my grandma's house and I just realized that there's three giant sassafras trees uh, in her property. And I never noticed them before until I started thinking about sassafras. And of course, I started thinking about history. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's the lesson that sassafras has to teach. Uh, you know, I maybe haven't learned the lesson 100% yet but uh it's it's a process so thanks for uh listening thanks for learning about sassafras with me and talk to you on the next episode my guest on this episode of rootbound was dr claire griffin claire is a historian fiction writer and mental health advocate her new book is called mixing medicines the global drug trade and early modern russia Rootbound is hosted by Steve Ellington, that is me. Music by Christian Kriegeskota. Fake ads by David Lani. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. But if you can go outside, perhaps you could learn something from a tree. Plantain! The other one! Plantain! Plantain! <laughs> <laughs>